Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. This week, I'm very excited to introduce Nancy Stetz. Nancy and I used to work together, and she is actually one of the people who inspired me to do this podcast because she was one of the few people that found these letters as funny as I did. So we'd be sitting in the break room talking about Thomas Jefferson's grandchildren giving each other potatoes. (laughs) So glad that she's finally able to come on. This is Nancy Stetz, Education Programs Manager at James Monroe's Highland. Hello, Nancy. Hello, Katie. I'm so glad to be here tonight. It was always good to find a kindred spirit that found historic letters as entertaining as as you and I did. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your work at Highland. I am education programs manager. I have been there for a little over eight years. And so it's involving hiring and training guides, our public programs, tour reservations. It's it's a nice mix of things. Sometimes it's just setting up chairs. It's, you know, we're we're a small team, a small and mighty team, as our director likes to say. And we're right next door to Monticello. Yeah, right down the road. For my listeners who might need a refresher, could you give a sort of quick introduction to Monroe? Yes, I can. So James Monroe was our fifth president from 1817 to 1825. He had, you know, entered the Revolutionary War at age 18. He'd crossed the Delaware with Washington's troops and uh, almost died at the Battle of Trenton and then just got involved in politics, which led him eventually all the way to the office of president. Eliza Monroe Hay, his daughter, whose um, letter we'll be talking about today, uh, would have, you know, grown up hearing, you know, a lot of those stories from um, early America that very much became part of her identity, being the daughter of James Monroe, which we'll certainly talk about. I always forget that he crossed the Delaware. That's so cool. And then was kind of erroneously painted in the boat with Washington and the very famous (laughs) Washington crossing the Delaware painting, symbolic painting. We know they actually crossed at different times. Still counts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is a letter from James Monroe's daughter, who I was not familiar with at all before you sent me this letter. So I was very excited when I received this one. Tell me a little bit about her. Eliza was definitely a character, someone that definitely, I would say, had a strong personality. You know, she's born, gosh, uh, her parents get married in February of 1786, and she's born in December 1786. So really, she's born about 10 months after they get married. So she's really with them for the almost entirety of their marriage and is along for the ride for a lot of very interesting events in early American history. I would say one thing about Eliza that probably really deeply imprinted her was being a diplomat's daughter. Monroe will end up going to France twice, once for Washington, then again for Jefferson. He was also a minister to England and Spain. Eliza, by the time she's 20 years old, she spent, you know, nearly eight years of her life in Europe and very interesting connections there. I think probably felt, you know, somewhat worldly. She was very well educated. When Monroe went to France for the first time under George Washington, he put Eliza in this school for girls run by Madame Campan. And she had been a lady in waiting for Marie Antoinette, also the sister of Citizen Genet, who I'm sure you know from your uh, work with the Washington Papers. Right away, Eliza is kind of like in the mix with all these kind of interesting personalities in Paris. And to kind of set the scene for when she first gets to Europe, when the Monroes get to France in 1794, it was 
early August and Robespierre had just been executed like three days before they got to Paris. It would have been certainly a rather dramatic time to, you know, become a American in Paris. Eliza would have certainly, you know, heard a lot of these stories, I'm sure. She seemed to have kind of a, it's an appreciation of drama <laughs> might be a nice way to put it. I, I know, I think kind of started in these girlhood years because she, yeah, she's seven years old when she, um, you know, first gets to Paris. At Madame Campan's school, she is going to make friends with another little girl there named Hortense. Hortense was the daughter of Josephine, who will later marry Napoleon. And so Eliza Monroe and Napoleon's stepdaughter become fast friends and are friends the rest of their lives. And even at Highland today, we have jewelry in our collection, for instance, that Hortense sent as gifts, you know, because they stayed in touch, like at important events in Eliza's life, like when she got married or had a child. Eliza even named her only daughter Hortensia after Napoleon's stepdaughter. It's interesting because that friendship, I think, kind of made Monroe the person Jefferson wanted to send to France to give Robert Livingston some backup help with negotiating of New Orleans, which then turned into Louisiana, uh, because you know, he already had these connections through his daughter, you know, with Napoleon's family. And they kept in touch like the rest of their lives. It's a really kind of an enduring friendship. What was it like for sort of watching Napoleon's rise and fall? I think that it was probably rather emotional roller coaster. Eliza's parents are actually at Napoleon's coronation, like James and Elizabeth Monroe, like were there and saw it. Monroe was definitely in the camp of thinking that, um, you know, he was very pro-French as a soldier, really felt gratitude toward France for their assistance in the revolution. Napoleon was not quite taking things where they needed to go. When Monroe comes back to America and Eliza is now, you know, not in Europe anymore, I have the impression from what I've read, she's the type of person that if you were in a room with her, you always learned and heard about her time in Europe and who she knew and what she did, <laughs> which um, I think was grating, to, you know, to some personalities in, in the social scene. And she got married uh, when she came back to America. She married a widower, George Hay, who was a, actually a fairly prominent attorney that was in the Aaron Burr treason trial, one of the prosecuting attorneys. So he was, you know, a fairly uh, big deal in his own, you know, weight before he ever uh, married the daughter of Monroe. Then once her father, once James Monroe becomes Madison Secretary of State in 1811, then she starts spending more time in D.C. kind of helping entertain with her parents. And then once Monroe is elected fifth president, Eliza uh, really did a lot of entertaining in place of her mother because Elizabeth Monroe just did not have the stamina and uh, was having a lot of health issues at that point. And Elizabeth Monroe, Monroe's wife, she, of course, had the unfortunate order of following Dolly Madison as first lady, who, you know, was very much born for the job and very you know, beloved in terms of the Washington social scene. Elizabeth was just a more reserved person and her health just didn't allow her to do what Dolly had done. So in steps Eliza with her personality of worldliness and everyone she knows in Europe. It <laughs> it was not quite as endearing as, 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 Dolly, as Dolly had been. She's a person of interesting extremes. I can't say this any better than someone who knew her. And so I'm going to actually read a quote from Louisa Catherine Adams, wife of John Quincy Adams, 
who was writing about Eliza in her diary. And this is a good one. Louisa says regarding Eliza, this woman is made up of so many great and little qualities, is so full of agreeables and disagreeables, so accomplished and so ill-bred, has so much sense and so little judgment, she is so proud and so mean, I scarcely ever met such a compound. I have certainly not written this in haste, as I have taken two years to decide upon her merit. But one striking trait I can pronounce, and that is her love of scandal. No reputation is safe in her hands. I never, since the first moment of any acquaintance with her, have never heard her speak well of any human being. Oh, that is so good. That, that was handpicked with you in mind. That was <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I want to hang out with her so bad. Yeah. And so you've got that, this very kind of petty side of Eliza. But then she also is an interestingly, very like deeply compassionate person. And so like in 1811, there was this terrible Richmond theater fire. And apparently she went and like cared for a number of the burn victims when she was pregnant and potentially lost the baby just due to the stress, but she was that type of person. When Monroe was president, John C. Calhoun, his secretary of war, Calhoun's wife, Florie, lost a baby. Eliza went and tried to you know, kind of sit with her like three nights in a row. Monroe described Eliza as the best nurse in the world. Margaret Bayard Smith, great chronicler of Washington society, she said, and so she proved to be. And so she's got this kind of like nurse maternalistic side and then is also has a love of scandal. The way Louisa described her, you know, I never knew such a compound. I, I thought that was a really good one. <laughs> Fabulous. Because I found a quote about her on the Monroe Papers website. Yeah. It was a little meaner, though. It was somebody saying like that she just talked and talked and talked. And I'm like, I want a second opinion. Yeah. <laughs> That's a subject I'll say that guides at Highland often banter around. It's like, what was Eliza really like? Is she as is she's bad as it sounds like? Or, you know, is there more this kind of gold interior? You know, it's it's hard to hard to say. I guess it would really just take meeting her. <laughs> yes. A complicated woman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's fabulous. I feel like I understand her a lot better now. Is there anything that you think they should know about this specific context right before we get into this letter? The letter we're going to read tonight is when Eliza is at the very end of her life. Whether she knows it or not, she will have less than a year until she dies. So this is like the final chapter in her life. And she's in France and she's just fallen on very hard times. And so to kind of set up, why is she in France? After Monroe retires from being president in 1825, Eliza and her husband kind of join her parents at their Oak Hill plantation in Northern Virginia. And Monroe sells Highland. He sells a number of enslaved families and kind of don't you don't really see him back in the Charlottesville area after he's president, with the exception of sometimes going to like meetings at the Board of Visitors at University of Virginia. He's now a Northern Virginia resident. And Eliza and her husband, George Hay, they're there too. Monroe has about a five-year retirement where he's basically trying to clear debts accrued from his political service. 
after about five years in 1830 in September, there is this like terrible double tragedy in the family where um, Eliza's husband, George Hay, had gone to the Springs and was on his way back and died like very suddenly. Like mm. he, he knew he'd been ill, like to the point where he'd made a will, but I don't know that they realized how drastic it was. So she doesn't get to see him before he dies. While she's you know, processing that, two days later, her mother, Elizabeth Monroe, also died at Oak Hill. So the family loses, um, you know, this very valued son-in-law, Eliza's spouse, and then Elizabeth, you know, all within a two-day blow of each other. And so then you've got Eliza, the older Monroe daughter, and her father there in Northern Virginia at Oak Hill thinking, you know, what should we do? Once Elizabeth and George are buried, Eliza and her father decide not to stay in Virginia. They decide to move in with her younger sister, Mariah. Monroe Gouverneur, who's now married uh, and living in New York City with her husband. And so they somewhat, you know, courageously just leave everything behind in Virginia and decide they're just going to go kind of live in New York City with and be a family, you know, all together again. Monroe ends up actually dying in New York City at his younger daughter's house. And so then there's Eliza, probably feeling very this, is, this would be 1831, her father dies, probably feeling just very alone in life. She lost her parents that she's very close with. She lost her husband. She did not get along particularly well with her brother-in-law, not the closest with her sister necessarily. Her younger sister was about 15 years younger than her. She did have a daughter, that Hortensia, named after Napoleon's stepdaughter, who was married and living in Baltimore. Well, big surprise, she didn't get along with her son-in-law either. She's, you know, a woman mature in years and trying to figure out what's next. And so um, apparently she had long wanted to go back to Europe. And in another uh, kind of gem of a Louisa Catherine Adams letter, uh, she was writing about kind of asking this visiting count if he had talked to Eliza. And the count told her uh, that he understood that Mrs. Hay was so fond of France that he believed she would do anything to get there again but that he understood that she had an old husband who would not go. Now that her husband passed away, she goes to France. I'm thinking this first time just because she wants to. So she goes kind of the early 1830s. And it seems to be more just, you know, again, for probably just to do something completely different, get away from all the loss and just clear her head. Well, while she's there, her you know, only daughter, Hortensia, died. We don't know how she found out, but she comes back to America, cares for the three now motherless grandchildren for a couple of years. She had three granddaughters. And then there's another kind of headbutting with the son-in-law. She also is not getting any of her inheritance from her parents, from her dad. Her, her brother-in-law, Samuel Gouverneur, she says he's not given her one cent. And she's spending all her inheritance from her husband on legal fees, trying to get what is due to her. And so probably because she feels like she has no other recourse, she takes the nuclear option and decides to go back to France a second time. And that is where we find her in this letter, where she thinks there is one kind of final favor she can cash in on. Fabulous. So with that, I'm going to go ahead. And read the letter. Liza Monroe Hay to King Louis Philippe of France, 1839. Sire, 
I wrote to you in March 1838, and my letter was presented to you by General Cass, Minister Plenipotentiary of the United States, and I have not, as yet, received an answer. Since that letter was written, I have been obliged on account of my health to take a sea voyage and came to Paris, where I have been nine months. My family were kind and consoled your mother, the late Duchess of Orléans, which was to the best of my recollection in the year 1794 and five, when she was separated from her children and did not know where they were. My father and mother, at great risk, kept up an intercourse secretly with her through servants hired for the purpose and recommended by Count Otto. And had it been known to the Chamber of Deputies, which was the only government that existed at the time, he would have been ordered out of Paris in 24 hours. I am now in distress, in ill health, and in a foreign country, and therefore appeal to your majesty to aid me for a short time. If your majesty would allow me a few rooms on the smallest scale in one of his numerous palaces in Paris, until my affairs are settled, I should feel myself under the greatest obligations. At present, I am making every effort to get my share of my late father's estate, James Monroe, fifth president of the United States. He left my brother-in-law sole executor, and he has kept the whole property in his hands, and I have not as yet received one cent. But to enable me to get what is literally due to me, almost all the little income left to me by my husband George Hay, judge of the Southern District of Virginia, is taken up in paying lawyers for opinions to bring the affair before the court of the United States. I regret extremely that my mother, before her death, burnt all of her papers, which puts it out of my power to produce many letters written by your mother, the late Duchess of Orléans, to her, and by the lady who attended her. If your majesty would give me a private audience, I could explain many things that I do not like to put upon paper. Perhaps it is not necessary to repeat that the Constitution of the United States makes no provision for the children of ex-presidents and it is possible that if your majesty should extend his protection to me at this moment of distress, that it may be remembered by the people of America with gratitude as sustaining the daughter of one of the ancient chiefs of the Republic and by a crowned head. They will feel it and deeply feel it. I have been much worried to find out how I could send this letter to your majesty. I could not ask General Cass as my first letter presented by him had not been answered. Therefore, I must trust to the first opportunity that offers. I confess that I do not wish that any eye should see the contents but yours, as I am told that no letter can be presented unless read by one of your ministers. Of course, if this is the case, I must send this in the usual way, but the person who has charge of it has read it. If your majesty cannot aid me, I earnestly beg that he will send me an answer, for suspense is the most dreadful state in which any human mind can be placed. I mentioned that I had lost my only child in my first letter. My father left his memoirs and other manuscripts, a large library, and an elegant establishment in Loudoun County, Virginia, all of which, with 3,000 acres, Mr. Gouverneur retains. Why his works are not published, no one can tell. If your majesty can aid me at the present moment, it may save me from utter ruin. Living in Paris, in very dear house rent, and fuel is enormous, and if I could for a few months be saved from such expense, I may hereafter be made happy and comfortable and repay whatever is not tendered to me. And that's the end. There's no signature. This appears to be a draft version of a letter. Is that your understanding? Yes. When you uh, first read this and noticed that, I thought, how astute. She does what she's doing. I like that Eliza Monroe, hey, she's in a tough spot. She's gone to Paris. And she's like, you know what? I'm just going to write to the king. <laughs>
he owes me. <laughs> I've just got to pull some strings. I've got an in with the king of France. <laughs> oh, and something I wasn't sure how to best read this. Sure. At the beginning, when she says, I wrote to you in March 1838, she had originally written to, I wrote to your majesty, and then she crossed out your majesty <laughs> and just writes you. As soon as I saw that, I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> she, she's like, no, I don't need to be this deferential. What Republican simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mr. King. <laughs> you. Of all the letters that I know you and I both read throughout our public history careers, this is one that kind of rises like cream to the top for me. <laughs> her sense of this is what I need to do and I'm going to do it. Yes. <laughs> Just like, how dare you not answer my letter? Yeah. <laughs> I am writing again. Yeah. She made sure he knew that <laughs> she had not received a response from the first one. It feels like a very American letter to me in that she's like, okay, you're the king of France. My dad was James Monroe. Let's talk. You know, this letter tells us some interesting things in terms of studying this family. This is our source of what happened to Elizabeth Monroe's letters, Eliza's mom. You know, yeah. she says she you know, had, had burned them. To this day, you know, the papers of James Monroe out of Mary Washington, you know, they have maybe three. It's a very small number of letters that you know, have Elizabeth's handwriting on them. And so this is the genesis of what happened to them, you know, via Eliza. So that's a very valuable thing for us, you know, in terms of our, our study and our, our lack of Elizabeth letters. I was looking for references in different biographies of this assistance that the family provided to the Duchess of Orleans. And I can't find that anywhere. You know, I'm, I'm sure those letters, which obviously sounded like they could have gotten in big trouble for them, you know, I'm sure they got burned. <laughs> but again, that's also our source that they had done this top secret operation, sending Louis Philippe's mom these like little notes through servants secretly. I, I mean, that was that was news to me, you know, reading this letter. Yeah. The French Revolution is such a fascinating moment. It's so interesting. It's so crazy mm -hmm. that this is just like part of her childhood that she just remembers this. Yes. Yeah. And so casually, I believe this was between 1794 and five. <laughs> this was happening. Yeah. So basically, Louis Philippe's mom had been kind of in this prison for the rich, you know, separated from her children. And apparently somehow as American minister, the Monroes were like feeding her information about how her sons were and what they were doing. It's interesting, in Monroe's autobiography, he does write about helping to free Madame Lafayette from prison and also freeing Thomas Paine from prison, which were pretty um, elaborate schemes he and his wife cooked up. This was a new one, you know, to learn about this, too. Makes me wonder, are there other things that they were, you know, secretly rigging that, you know, just haven't turned up yet? Yeah, they were like the Scarlet Pimpernel of America, <laughs> American ministers over there. That's crazy and yeah. so like yeah i don't doubt that that's what happened totally lines up like the timing lines up everything mm -hmm. seems like this is legitimate and again also it's just like such an interesting time period right so like she was there during the revolution where there's no king they live through the reign of terror napoleon and now it's like oh wait i know his mom is now the king of france yeah yeah um and he would have been you know somewhat older than her not like by multiple decades, like he probably would have just been like an old, older adolescent to her when she was over there. Yeah, no, it, it is very interesting of like, hey, I'm going to pull this card of my parents helped your mom. 
I bet he does have a palace she could just chill in for a while, I right? Know. She, she's thinking, like, there's probably some room no one's in at the palace that she could occupy just fine. What's really tragic, we don't know whether she ever got a response or not, whether he deigned to respond, whether he did and just said no. But we do know that Eliza ended up dying, you know, less than a year later. She died on January 27th of 1840, presumably at her, her residence. Uh, which was 62 Champs-Élysées in Paris, you know, died alone in, in Paris. And so the American consul, Daniel Brent, arranged for her funeral. And Eliza Monroe is buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery today. She's still there. And that's why, is because she had done this kind of Hail Mary where she went over to, to Europe and, and then never came back for that second time. Wow. Wow. I mean, again, it takes so much guts. Like, I think that was really, really interesting. And yeah, and talking about like heartbreaking, like I was reading this just like punching the air. And then when she got to the line where she says, suspense is the most dreadful state in which the human mind can be placed. I mentioned that I had lost my only child in my first letter. It seems like a non sequitur, but it's like she was writing that. And then she was like, no, there's something worse. And then she wrote it. I would guess that probably that didn't make it into the final letter since this is the draft version. She's sort of stream of consciousness writing. That broke my heart. She's just really at this rock bottom place where she probably just feels like she has nothing to lose. And so she's just going to try this. Yeah. She talks about her brother-in-law, Samuel Gugner. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is her take making him worse or was he really sort of keeping all of this money from her? Do you know his side of the story? I do think she has an accurate depiction of him. He was supposed to publish Monroe's papers. He just kind of takes years and years and years and years and years. Not very responsible project manager will say, we just learned this as a site uh, through some really amazing independent research some guides had done, and they found a ship manifest. And Samuel Gouverneur, out of the Franklin and Armfield business, sold over 30 people from Oak Hill to Louisiana for money. He was in all sorts of scandals with post office. He, after Eliza's younger sister dies in 1850, he, within a very brief period of time, remarries to this Mary Diggs Lee, who was kind of an heiress from several prominent families, seemed to have an issue with horse racing and gambling. So yeah, I would, I would say Eliza is correct. He is not distributing the will as he was supposed to. How frustrating. Both of the Monroe's daughters really don't have the most positive life after their parents die, just due to circumstances. It's interesting that when you start digging, you're like, oh my gosh, they're having a lot of financial difficulties. And a lot of it's all coming from the son-in-law, Samuel Gouverneur, just from his mismanagement of money. The next generation after this founding generation they do seem to be like, well, we can just print the papers of our parents and that's going to be our ticket out of here, right? Like that's going to give us so much money. That'll be fine. From what I can tell, the only person that really worked with was actually Bushrod Washington. But then that they didn't even come out till after he died. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. But it was like, everybody seemed to be like, well, we'll publish these papers. Everybody will snap them up. And then it's like, they're almost never profitable, <laughs> these early editions. And it takes longer than people think. So as, as a documentary editor myself, I'm always interested in how these things worked out. But with Bushrod, it is when you read his letters, you can like see the dollar signs like in his eyes. <laughs> He's talking about publishing these letters. He is 
he's found his golden ticket. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so it took a long time for Monroe's papers to get published. It's such a shame that her mom burned all of her letters again with these women's letters. Martha did it. Yeah. And, you know, learning that, like, you know, Elizabeth Monroe was like involved in these like, secret letters to like the exiled Duchess. I'm like, this woman had, you know, she had some guts too. Like, you know, she's doing things that she could have really gotten in trouble, you know, for doing again through her daughter's letters. Luckily, Eliza, you know, we are, we were able to find out, you know, details like that. I feel like there's a book somewhere about this, like this next generation after the founders, because there's a lot of characters. Yeah. So we just don't know much about Louis Philippe. It seems like he lived in America for some times as a teacher. So, man, maybe that was part of her thinking he could be sympathetic because he had spent some time in America after the revolution. Who knows? Maybe she thought he, he could identify more so because of that. Yeah, because I was trying to think, I was like, would anyone have written to like Marie Antoinette and like King of France, like Louis XIV being like, hey, can I just like have a room at Versailles? I'm in trouble. Is part of the reason that she is treating him so much as an equal because really, they really are. Yeah. She's American. She doesn't believe in this, like, the king has been chosen by God thing. But at, at this point in France, nobody does. <laughs> it's sort of showing in a small way how tenuous his grasp of the throne is to me. Yeah. He's just some guy who just happens speaking. <laughs> We ever find the 1838 letter that he never got or any more to this, I'll definitely fill you in. Some archive in Paris has this. I'm convinced there's, this is going to pop up one day out of nowhere and it will answer a lot more questions. As another element to Eliza, her mother fell in a fire in the retirement years at Oak Hill and was very severely burned. And whenever this happened, Monroe was like writing to um, that son-in-law, the scoundrel Samuel Gouverneur, telling him about it. But kind of like, in a don't worry. She's under Eliza's care, Eliza having had many cases of burns under her care before. You know, I'm assuming that's back with the Richmond Fire of 18, Theater Fire of 1811. So she ends up using that, you know, very tragic experience to also care for her mom. But that was just another insider tidbit about her. It sounds like she was a really good nurse. He mentioned that it's also kind of like a nurse-like personality to be very blunt and interested in drama, but also be really good at caring for people. I feel like if we're going on nurse stereotypes. That's true. Yeah, I would imagine if like a nurse had to give King Louis Philippe a shot, she would do it with the same ceremony that she would give any old person off the street. <laughs> Probably Eliza's personality in a nutshell. And the fact that she got this really good education and then was able to use it, I feel like. She was fluent in French. I mean, I think she would have been a very cultured person to speak with. Apparently, even when Monroe was president, she and her mom and sister were still getting their clothes from Paris. So that was, again, very much part of their personality. How did Monroe feel about the French Revolution? <laughs> They're clearly helping people. They're seeing the reign of terror. He's in a kind of awkward spot because when he was a soldier, you know, he'd met Lafayette, he'd met Dupont. So he had a lot of friends he'd made during the revolution that were French. And so he's just kind of like head over heels with excitement to be in France now in the 1790s. Washington is, you know, president and wanting Monroe to keep this very hard line neutrality stance. And then there's the Jay Treaty that no one will tell Monroe anything about. And the French are kind of like, hey, what's this? And Monroe is kind of put in this awkward position of like, no one will tell me anything, but we love you. We love you all. Like America loves France. And then Washington decides Monroe is 
is being too pro-French because he's trying to kind of overcompensate for their insecurities about the Jay Treaty. And then Washington fired Monroe from his post as diplomat to France. Their relationship never recovered after that. Monroe came home extremely offended. He self-published this defense of his actions called A View of the Conduct of the Executive that's like over 400 pages, sticking up for the decisions he made in France and criticizing Washington for not trusting him and not understanding what he was trying to say. And Washington apparently got a copy of this book and wrote in the margins, disagreeing back with Monroe's points. Uh, it's so funny talking to Washington people and talking to the Federalist people and talking to the people who work at Democratic-Republican sites, because it's still, to this day, the party divide lives on. Yeah, because like Jefferson and Madison are like, do it, do it, do it. Like They're totally like encouraging him to self-publish this book. And so this is getting off topic from Eliza, but then you know Monroe will end up having this deja vu experience where when he's minister to Great Britain, Jefferson fired him from that because of a treaty he didn't find satisfactory. And, you know, I was like, okay, Monroe did not come home and write a defense of his action and criticizing Jefferson. He's learned. He just kind of took a step up for a lift and came home. Oh, man. Keep getting fired by your friends. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was just too awkward at the thought of living next door to, to this one. <laughs> These are kind of the the situations Eliza is probably hearing about, you know, over the dinner table. And, you know, I can I can see how you would kind of be used to this level of action and drama and ups and downs and therefore continually think it, you know, in Washington society in the 18 teens and 20s. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. This is a blast. Thank you for, for having me. This was really fun to discuss this letter. And um, again, I'm just thinking, I think your podcast is great. I'm so glad that you do this. Any other letters you have, any other of these 18th century letters, come back on. We're happy to have you. It's a plan. <laughs> for my listeners, I will link to this letter in the show notes. And Nancy, if you don't mind sending me the source of some of those quotes, I'll make sure I cite them in our show notes. Glad to. They deserve to be read. They're they're excellent, excellent phrasing. Yes. With that, thank you very much for listening. And I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant is a production of R2 Studios.